Welcome to Jay Madison's Rural America. It's a journey through the stories impacting rural economies and country lifestyles. Jay Madison's Rural America is also a production of Jefferson County Economic Development. Now here's Jay. Hey there, folks. This is Jay Madison, host of Jay Madison's Rural America. Very happy to have y'all tuning in today. Uh, Sitting across the table from me is the one, the only Ron Robbins, local dairy farmer, owner, well, partner in Old McDonald's Farm, and uh, just an all-around really great businessman and co-host of this podcast. So how you doing, Ron? I'm doing great, Jay. How are you? I'm doing really good as long as I make sure I hit the right buttons here this morning. Well, and we, let's uh, step up your game here. Yeah, it's a Friday morning. <laughs> I'm going to use that excuse. So I've got all the right bu- buttons pushed now, so we should be in good shape. Awesome. We won't tell everybody what all that meant, but yeah. they'll just assume that I really screwed up. But we're really excited. We've got a a great program coming up today, uh, but first, I just want to mention our 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 podcast that we just recorded uh, earlier this week with Doctor Steiger. Uh, that made it onto News Junkie, Ron. Uh, yeah. You're famous. Yeah, we're, once you get to News Junkie, you've uh, <laughs> you've arrived, time. right? It's so, a big time. Uh, but actually, it was a very uh, interesting podcast to talk about the. The research that was done last winter in regards to lake effect snow and lightning strikes with the windmills on the Tug Hill. Yeah, and I was pretty surprised when Dr. Steiger was, as I said during the podcast, very blunt about, you know, it was very noticeable that a lake effect snow ban would not be producing any lightning until it hit the wind farms. Right. And then it would start popping lightning. Yeah. Once a minute. Yes. That was that was yeah, pretty, was pretty remarkable. Yep. So uh, I'm I'm not going to make a practice of standing next to wind towers Probably during a lake effect a snowstorm. <laughs> it's not a good idea. But well, we've had some uh, we've had some interesting weather this week, Jay, uh, around the country. Uh, you know, a hundred degrees. We've had this heat dome in the Midwest. Uh, my friends out there are basically saying. Uh, some of the crops have simply just given up with that heat. They were very dry in some areas to begin with. And, uh, you know, here we continue to have clouds and yesterday a high of 68 degrees. Uh, but today, rainy, muggy, cloudy again. Yeah, um, just yuck. Yeah. So uh, it's been an interesting summer between uh, smoke. Uh, you know, we're seeing crop development really be... Uh, uh, stymied here a little bit. It's going to be a late harvest season. Uh, the way this growing season is shaped up, super dry up until about the 15th of July. Right, right. And now we've gotten super wet. So uh, our guest today will fit right in. He's going to shed light on all of this and have explanations for everything that's happening out there. Not to put any pressure on him. Right. <laughs> so let's introduce our guest that might have just hung up the phone when I when I said all that. We have joining us today, folks, Matt Rosencrans. He is the director of the Climate Test Bed at the Climate Prediction Center. And he's also the team leader for the Seasonal Hurricane Prediction Center. So you may very well see Matt on TV, or you might read about his name in uh, 
stories about hurricane predictions and so on. Uh, he is heavily involved in uh, keeping our, our folks uh, forewarned about hurricanes and uh, tropical systems uh, in the Atlantic and Gulf of Mexico and I think on the Pacific side of things, but maybe he'll correct me on that. So, Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for joining us today. Good morning, Jay. Good to talk to you. Hey, Ron. Hi. Good morning. So, I put a little pressure on you. You know everything about the weather. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I haven't hung up. Still hanging in here, so we'll get, we'll get to talk about all of it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so we really appreciate you joining us, Matt. Appreciate the fact that you're you're going to spend some time with us talking about a lot of things to do with the climate and with weather systems. And, and if I might just yeah, preface go this, Jay, just a little bit as we begin this discussion, Matt. Us involved in agriculture, uh, you know, we we kind of get up every morning, we go to bed every night thinking about what the weather's going to do and how it impacts us, not just from a production standpoint, uh, but also from a marketing standpoint. You know, weather impacts crops all around the world, of course. We're in a global economy. So what happens in Asia, what happens in Europe, what happens in North America, South America, when it comes to weather, whether it be droughts, whether it be floods, whether it be... uh, High temperatures, I just mentioned, you know, as in the intro here, talking about the heat dome and, and kind of that ring of fire that's been going on here this week in the in the Midwest. And so folks like yourself really pay, play an important role for us involved in production agriculture because we rely on a lot of those predictions to uh, make important decisions about not just day-to-day planning, but seasonal planning. Yeah, and that- and we're out here doing the research to and delivering the products to try and make them as accurate as possible. And there's a whole team of us at NOAA's Climate Prediction Center. We also work very closely with the uh, USDA um, and their agriculture meteorologists there that are tracking those worldwide conditions as well. So uh, it's, a, it's a big system that goes into a lot of this information uh, to hopefully help everyone you know, just have a little bit better season every year. Yeah. Yeah. And that was a great segue, Ron and Matt, into our story today because we're, folks, we're going to be talking about, we're going to start our conversation with the record high surface water temperatures down in the Gulf of Mexico. And you might be listening, saying, well, wait a minute, this is a more or less an agricultural talk show. Why are they talking about surface water temps in? The Gulf of Mexico. Well, that Ron and I, as we saw these stories developing about this, made us wonder, okay, what does this mean? How will this impact weather systems on the eastern seaboard of the United States and then also inland to our area here in northern New York? What will it do to weather systems or what is it an indication of that we might expect as far as uh, some climate changes, weather systems moving across the continental United States. How does it impact all of that? So uh, we are, are really excited to talk about this. So Matt, um, you know, let's start out with what's happening in the Gulf of Mexico with surface water temperatures. We, I saw a story about water temps at 101.9 degrees, and I'm like, whoa, that's that's like hot, you know, hot tub water temperatures. But uh, that's not indicative of 
of what the water temps across the Gulf are, is it? I uh, know that's probably the warmest single value in the Gulf uh, for that that time period. Those temperatures were reported from a couple of buoys that are in very shallow water that is also potentially very cloudy. And, and that's kind of the discussion amongst the scientists at NOAA and the academic partners that are at the research labs or you know some universities down in Florida that are experts in observational and the systems and technologies used for that. They know what impacts them more so or adversely impacts their measurements. Um, so they'll, they'll sort that out and see if those values are will stand and get into the, the final data record or will they be quality controlled out um, for having you know something wrong with them having too much sediment maybe some sand actually clogged onto one of the sensors okay so that but we validate all the measurements that we use for these they are the initial data comes out and then there's a heavy QC quality control process that goes on for all of our data. Okay, and that's good to hear because, you know, when you see that, you're like, you know, obviously that's made sensational headlines uh, with some of the news outlets. And, you know, even up here in Northern New York, it catches your attention if you pay attention to the weather at all. So what is happening then with surface water temps? Are we seeing record temperatures? And obviously, especially in your line of work, you're the team lead for the Seasonal Hurricane Prediction Center. If we are seeing record high surface water temperatures, what does that mean for the hurricane season? Yeah, so even if those individual measurements don't um, pass quality control, there are many other measurements, hundreds of them across the Gulf of Mexico. And right now, July average, you know, we do these things usually monthly, the analysis. So the July sea surface temperatures are about two degrees to two and a half degrees Fahrenheit above normal, which is close to record or or a record depending on exactly which data set you use. So they're quite warm, even if those individual very high measurements were taken out of the system, there's enough other measurements that will still hold that record. And when once you have ocean temperatures, 26 degrees Celsius or 79 degrees Fahrenheit, that's warm enough to support a tropical storm. Ideally, you want that water to be also warm as it goes down further into the ocean, um, down 150, 200, 300 feet into the ocean, you want that warmth uh, to also continue uh, if, you, if you want to make a stronger storm. So right now, the Gulf and Atlantic are definitely warm enough to support many tropical storms. Would you characterize it that the potential is there for very strong tropical systems this year with what you're seeing for the water temps? What we're seeing for the water temps would be would more support more storms um, and how many of them develop into the very strong category three storm at four and five storms what we call major hurricanes um, within NOAA uh, that's individually based on each storm um, with the wind pattern it's going to encounter in that storm's kind of life cycle which is about a week or two um, not something you know we can predict the numbers of them but we can't in the season but we don't really have the ability to predict a single storm should it form in a certain region should that become a major hurricane any more than a couple of days out because okay. there's there's really a lot more factors to hurricane development than just sea surface temperature correct i mean wind oh, yeah. wind shear jet stream movement how upper atmospheric uh, highs and lows are are moving and interacting with one another is that kind of a fair statement absolutely there's there's many factors um they go into the, we take into account the outlook, uh, wind shear, 
the difference between winds at about 5,000 and about 35 to 40,000 feet above the ground. So we take those differences, sea surface temperatures, moisture. Remember back to last year, it was very quiet during most late July and most of August. We didn't have any tropical storms. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's because the air out over the central Atlantic where they would form was very dry, but it's only very dry from about 30,000 feet up to about 50,000 feet. So any of the storms that built up didn't build up very tall, so they couldn't then kind of gather strength and then become tropical storms. And wasn't some of that because of some of the dry, dusty air coming off the African coast last year? That that inhibited some storm development early in June and July. Yeah. And then that upper level dryness really capped it out through August. And that mm-hmm. kind of kept last year very quiet during the you know June, July, and August period of summer. Very interesting. Very yeah, interesting. Yeah, so it's really... It's really hard to just point at one thing then, and really it's uh, it's atmospheric conditions just have to come together almost perfectly, right, to get a major hurricane. Yes, movement. and that's why, they're, that's why they're quite rare. Um, you know, in an entire year, you only average three of them in the Atlantic Basin. Um, even in the Pacific, where it's a little bit more wide open and conditions are a little bit more favorable, they only average four in the East Pacific. So they're mm. still rare events. So this one that just occurred that kind of went up through the Southern California and made its way all the way to Idaho, I guess, and dropped a, a year's worth of rain in, in a few hours there, you know, east of L.A. and up through Nevada. And that seemed to me to be pretty rare for a storm to move in that direction. That is very rare. 1939 was the last time you had a tropical storm actually make landfall in California. We do often, I would say, and by often, I mean, usually once a year, you do end up with remnant moisture Mm-hmm. Moving from the storm in the east coast in the East Pacific up into the southwest U.S., but typically we'll see that more central Arizona and into New Mexico. You don't typically see it as far west into California. So uh, your your insights and inclinations there are spot on. Very interesting. Very interesting. Well, I'd like to bring us back to the Gulf of Mexico and the sure. the water temperatures that you're seeing there. Not so much on the hurricane side, but interested in how this might impact the eastern coast of the United States. And folks might be saying, well, okay, it's down in the Gulf of Mexico. How does warm water water in the Gulf of Mexico impact the weather systems on the east coast, especially the New England area? So the water that is in the Gulf of Mexico, eventually that does end up flowing through the, the Gulf Stream out of the Gulf and heading northeast along the east coast of the United States. Is that correct, Matt? It does. The Gulf Stream does a lot of that transport of warm water from the tropics northward. And then that the Gulf Stream will typically hug the east coast of the U.S. roughly up to about Cape Hatteras. And then it starts to kind of turn out to sea a little bit from there. Okay. So how? what is the potential interaction there? Is there concern that there's these record temperatures in the Gulf of Mexico, and that water is going to be flowing up the East Coast, what is the interactions that that might cause? How does that impact our our climate systems here along the Eastern Seaboard? Well, especially during El Nino years, which we are forecast to be in El Nino throughout the winter, 
you get a storm track that moves that is aligned, which a storm track means where do most of your average low pressure systems go. So most of your low pressure systems during the winter in El Nino, you get more development an area and aligned basically from Texas to kind of North Florida, and then it curves up the East Coast. So as those storms curve up the East Coast, they can tap into that energy that's represented in that Gulf Stream, um, and they really tap into what's the energy difference between the cold land. Right in January, February, March, it's cold in the land, but that Gulf Stream is still warm, and they really tap into that that difference in temperature. Um, and the stronger that difference in temperature, the stronger those storms can get, as they can really wrap up and bring a lot of snowfall to the kind of more coastal locations. Um, you know, kind of from the Appalachians and you know, kind of maybe kind of Albany southward, and then up into you know the southern parts of Vermont and eastern parts of um, New Hampshire. Uh, you'll get more coastal load development rather than interior load development over the Great Lakes. See, it's kind of that, the whole nor'easter kind of phenomenon, right, where it picks up that Gulf moisture, interacts with that cold air, and and brings those storms right up the coast over the major metropolitan areas of the East yep. Coast. Yep. It, uh, yep. Now, well, you know, this, this transition from El Nino... Uh, we're, we've been in La Nina, transitioning to El Nino. You know, some folks will say El Nino will tend to bring a warmer than normal winter to the Great Lakes region. But some things I've read lately tell me that there's certain phenomenon in place out in the Pacific where actually the central Pacific is going to be warmer than the eastern Pacific under this El Nino. And that can potentially create, I guess, what they call an amplified jet stream that will cause some of that nor'easter activity ultimately with that dipping down, pulling colder air from, you know, the polar vortex kind of thing, pulling that down and interacting with that warm water and that warm air of the south and then bringing that right back up the coast. Does that make any sense? Or? It does. So where the kind of warmest place in the Pacific Ocean ends up being, if it's more in the Central Pacific or it's more in the Eastern Pacific, the atmospheric pattern that evolves from that is very sensitive. Uh, you'll end up with, if it's in the traditional Eastern Pacific, you end up with a low pressure system off the West Coast and a high pressure system kind of uh, over the Great Lakes. Mm -hmm. If that's shifted further west, you can move that high pressure system from the Great Lakes and move it to the west, and then you have a spot for a low pressure system on average uh, to develop over the northeast. So yes, it's very sensitive to exactly where that develops. It can have dramatically different impacts from one El Nino to the next. No two are, no two are exactly the same. Yeah, I actually looked at some data this morning that looked at El Ninos over uh, fairly, I don't know, going back, 100 plus years, there there is no correlation to any of them, really. I mean, they're all so different. Um, it's kind of mind-boggling, actually. I mean, I was, I was kind of looking at that in prep for this today, and it just really stood out. Yeah. Um, so when, I, when the analysis, whether it's hurricanes or whether it's uh, temperature, precipitation, snowstorms, um, I always... The El Nino impacts are typically about 30 to 38% of your downstream impact. So there's a whole other 60% that is kind of defined and controlled by other things, local conditions, soil moisture, the, the wind patterns that are influenced 
um, by things coming out of the Arctic. So there's there's lots of other factors that go into that. Um, and so it was only one part of it. And that's why we have these, you know, the whole team of people looking at each one of those individually. And then we come together and make the outlook. Very, very complicated. It's, it is amazing to, to think about. So, I mean, uh, should we, should we with, with this warmer Gulf Stream flow, the potential that El Nino is going to create this situation where storms will come up out of uh, that Texas to Florida area and flow up along the East Coast. So in general, we potentially could be looking at potentially more nor'easter type systems coming up the coastline yeah that would be in line with our seasonal outlooks that we have out there um and in line with the historical data um especially as you get further into the winter um we see a little bit of that in the september october november outlook where we do have our the official NOAA outlooks do call for wetness kind of in this um southeast kind of carolinas extending down toward mississippi kind of highlighting the beginnings of that kind of pattern um and then as we get into the kind of December, January, February outlook, the above normal precipitation stretching all the way from Texas all the way up into the uh, into Jersey. So getting seeing that pattern kind of setting up now, our outlooks are leaning towards that way. And as we get closer to the winter, we'll be refining the exact areas of those outlooks. Sure, sure. Now, for us here in in northern New York State, um, and I would include western New York in this, we may or may not get hit by the nor'easters. All depends upon the track. A lot of times we might catch the fringe. They tend not to hit us as much. It's not as big a worry as the wraparound lake effect snowstorm. So that's what usually happens is that wraparound brings that that cold north wind down across the water. Well, and that's what I was going to ask yeah. is uh, what what they're expecting to see as far as like the polar vortexes and and that. Do we expect to see cold air with the way you've been describing the system? Will we see cold air wrapping in with the way the, the jet stream will be flowing up the eastern coast of the U.S.? So, yes, you are likely to see those periods of intense cold air behind those individual systems. The seasonal forecast overall is for a a slightly warmer than normal winter, but you will have, that's kind of when you take the average of all the winter, but there will definitely be those periods where it is brutally cold after some of these storms. And then you'll go back to a period where, you know, a longer period between the storms where it's slightly warmer than normal, mm. and then you drop down after each storm. So you're going to have that variability um, within the winter. So the good For news sure. of that, you know, on a dairy farm here in upstate New York, we, we always <laughs> cringe at the thought of a cold spell in the winter because there's nothing worse than having to deal with you know, sub-freezing temperatures for days and days on end. The good news is, though, they tend to be, like you said, pretty short-lived when that cold spell hits after a nor'easter. Yeah, and this type of system, we're looking at short cold spells, yeah. not two weeks of right, 20 below. Right. And, and then you warm back up, so you get a reprieve, you can catch your breath, prepare for the next the next go-around. So it, it tends to be a lot more... Uh, bearable i guess from the, it, from that standpoint is that a, a correct assumption of what you're saying matt yes that's 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 more of the scenarios you're likely to see this winter um that results in the you know overall the winter will be slightly above normal temperatures but so that does point to kind of shorter periods of those intense cold events now 
Matt, how how does this kind of system impact uh, Europe? Do you get into that at all to look at you know what goes on you know across the Atlantic into Eastern Europe uh, or Western Europe? I mean, you know, England, Eastern Russia or Western Russia, excuse me, but <laughs> Eastern Europe and. Uh, yeah, I got to get my directions right here. Right. But uh, you know, how does it impact weather across the Atlantic? Um, so El Ninos are uh, typically associated with uh, some warm conditions across much of Europe. There's a bit of a coolness that can end up in the UK and up through Scandinavia, but most of Europe and even down towards uh, Turkey and the Black Sea region have a bit of an association with above normal temperatures um, during El Nino event. Um, that correlation is much weaker than over the U.S., though, so, because it's a bit further away. You know, El Nino is kind of centered in the Pacific, so the further you go away, they kind of weaker those connections. And then on the other side, they are also, while being warm, they are also associated with warmer, with wetter winters um, in those same regions. So from Spain across to Turkey and then up to, you know, up towards Poland, that kind of triangle there, um, which is a lot of the agricultural region of Europe. And I know there's been a lot of, there was a lot of concern last year about potential for a cold winter in Europe and natural gas supplies. And it actually didn't materialize even last year. They ended up being a lot warmer. And, you know, I think that same concern exists this year, but maybe you're saying that that may be unfounded fears that they may stay warmer than normal. Well, that's the thing is, so last year we're, we're in a La Nina winter, and when I look at those La Nina patterns, they would be exactly flipped from what I said. So mm-hmm. while I said UK to kind of Scandinavia and maybe Germany are likely to be cool during El Nino's, they're likely to be warm during La Nina's. Okay. So I don't, so the exact impact this year is still, you know, it's, it's still to be determined Term- for this. Yeah. Um, yeah. And if I just, just was going to do a forecast based on ENSO connections, it would be that kind of Germany, Scandinavia, even France would have below normal temperatures. Okay. And then that warmth is from kind of Spain, the Mediterranean countries okay. and over. So you, those, the, the, that there's a bit of a, if I look at it right now, it looks like actually there's a bit of a mountain ranges that kind of play a, a role in that as well. Because it seems to be where the uh, Pyrenees and the Alps cut across Europe. It seems like that, that kind of keeps that cold air at bay. One last thing, we're, we're starting to run out of time, but one last topic that I wanted to hit on with with this whole question about the record warm water in the Gulf of Mexico flowing up through the Gulf Stream out into the uh, uh, the Atlantic, out here off the east coast of the United States. I've been reading about the, and I'm going to refer to it in, in very general terms, the cold blob of water uh, that is suggested to exist, um, I believe, off of Greenland. And there's concern that that cold blob is growing because that's a freshwater infiltration from uh, melting ice sheets in Greenland. So, first of all, is that accurate? Am I am I reading the correct information? Am I am I summarizing that information correctly? And then, what potential impact? If 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 you're comfortable with this, uh, what potential impact would these uh, warmer waters flowing through the Gulf Stream have? on the development of that cold blob and how all of that is a concern for climate change. 
There's a lot of parts to that question. There. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's been sitting. I've I've read about this, and when I first got in touch with you, that this was one of the things that was on my mind. Is okay. Besides how it impacts our weather, how is this going to impact the the system, the the way you know the whole uh, I don't know what to call it, the system in the oceans, the Atlantic Ocean right. works and does do these record temperatures have the potential to change something either positive or not positive, or does it even exist? Yeah. Uh, so there. Are- is a larger pool of kind of cooler water um, that is south of Greenland. You can see it, the sea surface temperatures there are warm, but when you start to analyze the temperatures as you go down to about a thousand feet below the sea surface and you integrate all that, it becomes much cooler. Um, I don't get to quite negative values for that, but it does get much cooler. So you can tell that the warmth there is very much surface-based and it's not uh, extending down. So that cooler water is mixing in there. As far as the warmth of the sea surface temperatures this year versus that Greenland, um, the cool, the sinking of the water there and the uh, thermohaline circulation for the Atlantic, the thing is the record warmth in the Gulf this year, transporting that much energy, that, that's kind of a year-to-year thing. The thermohaline circulation is more like a 50 to 100-year thing. So this, this single year isn't going to likely to disrupt that too much from the, or inter, in, interplay with that too much. But as far as when you look at that out 50 to 100 years, if that circulation were to change dramatically, it would change the climate of, uh, of the northeastern U.S. Um, and as well as the climate of Europe. There are people within NOAA that do really focus on that. Century-long climate change thing is not really my area. No, and that's fine. I, I, I appreciate your honesty there. It's fascinating, though. I really, I mean, I wish I, I wish I had 27 hours in the day so I could spend a couple hours studying that stuff, too. One, one last thing I wanted to bring up while we have you here is uh, there's been a lot of a lot of information lately coming out of Asia, so, Southern Asia, India, Indonesia, basically about in regards to the failed monsoon, Indian monsoon, what that's done to crop production in that region of the world. And I mean, we've saw India just put a uh, export ban on rice, uh, sugar just yesterday, sugar markets took off. They'd already banned wheat exports. Um, you know, basically they're looking at reduced production, significantly reduced. There's some theories that that's going to spread into Malaysia and Vietnam and other areas as we move through the next few months. Have any thoughts on that or what what potentially is causing that failed Indian monsoon over there? There are papers that link the Indian monsoon and the strength of it there to El Nino and La Nina. And typically during El Nino's, you will end up with drier temperatures. Uh, conditions across Southeast Asia, and there's that's that has a very strong relation uh, for Thailand um, and the rice production there, Vietnam and the rice production there, Indonesia. It's a little bit weaker when you get to the correlations with the Indian monsoon, but it's, there is still a positive correlation there. I'm looking at it right now, <clears throat> and it does look like the Indian monsoon is about when you average across all of India. Um, about two inches kind of below normal for average all of which when you average across an entire large country, that's a lot of precipitation. Mm-hmm. 
Um, they do all the measurements in millimeters, so I'm averaging, approximating that, you know, the, the differences there. So it does look like it's a little bit below normal uh, for their climatology. They had a good period in July where they were above normal, um, but now, I mean, looking at the month of August, almost every day has been below normal except for one. So it's definitely been dry there. And that's quite common during El Nino events for Southeast Asia. Um, to have a, a disrupted monsoonal circulation. It's kind of something interesting. When you look at averages, you say, oh, this is where the average monsoon trough might be. Well, that average is made up of all the years where it's above that and all the years where it's below that, all the years where it's west of it and east of it. You never actually see average. Or right. You rarely see, you'll see average in any given year. Right? It's kind of a, a mathematical human construct. So it's, it's very interesting to see these patterns evolve each year. Yeah, and the reason I bring that up is just, you know, going back to my original statement, when we look at food availability and uh, we look at production agriculture all around the globe, you know, it's interesting to, to watch some of these patterns evolve and what, what it does immediately to markets and the price of those commodities that are, you know, produced in those regions of the world. Yeah, um, it's something that NOAA's involved in a lot. Again, through our partners, the USDA, I had a long discussion with my colleagues about the impacts of these on not only the production, but then the shipping aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes. how, what are the impacts on these ports? What are the impacts? And, you know, and when you have a big storm or a storm track off the East Coast, that's a more favorable storm. Do you impact ships arriving on these East Coast ports? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and so you, you may not, you're not going to disrupt it for the entire winter, but you might have a one or two day delay as, this, you know, the ships kind of go out and they just hold, Yes. Uh, you know, a little bit out there. So I see that a lot with the, the tropical storms and hurricanes. They'll tend to use a lot of avoidance procedures um, based on the track forecast. So uh, it, it's a big, it's a big concern. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah. It, it, that's the amazing thing. And a lot of people don't realize it, that, uh, you know, the weather not only impacts the ability to grow a crop out of the soil or wherever, uh, but it also impacts the systems uh, involved in the processing and delivery of, of our food globally. And it, it's just amazing when you start to pay attention to these things, you know, how interrelated and how much impact. Like you said, Ron, price of sugar's up yeah. from... Uh, from Southeast Asia because of the lack of a monsoon season. So that will impact us here in the U S so just amazing. Well, Matt, we need to wrap up, sir. We've kept you long enough. Uh, it has been a very, very interesting. I don't know. I think our weather is going to be very interesting. This this, it always is, but I, for some reason, I've got a feeling it's going to be a crazy winter. So, um, well, we're right right now. We're just hoping for a nice, warm, dry yes. fall. Yes. So uh, let's see if we can uh, mix that up. And uh, yeah, that would be nice. <laughs> yeah. that would be nice. But Matt, thank you very much for joining us today, sir. We really appreciate it. Great talking to you. Um, and if you have any other future weather questions or things you want, um, we're up. always here. So uh, just reach out. All right. Well, thank you very much, sir. You have a great day. And to all our listeners out there, thank you for tuning in to Jay Madison's Rural America. Thank you for tuning in to Jay Madison's Rural America. Make sure to join us weekly. If you have any questions about the show, call Jay at 315-782-5865. For more information, visit www.agricultureevents.com 
for jcida.com. Until next time, thanks for tuning in to Jay Madison's Rural America.